Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. Turn to the Bible today. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 20 through verses 35. 20 through 35. It should be on the screen above. Or you can open up your Bible, and I hope you will open your Bible and leave it open today as we uh, consider this passage. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Follow along as I read. Then when he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, But whatever blasphemies, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, because he's guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. One of my favorite Christian songwriters of the last 30 years uh, is a man named Michael Card. Now, he's most famous for songs he's written for other people. So the Amy Grant song, El Shaddai, he wrote that. But if you ever get a chance to uh, listen to his music, I would highly recommend that you do. uh, Because to me, he writes the kind of music that helps me to understand the Bible better. And that's rare these days. Most Christian music helps you to understand the Bible worse, it seems. Uh, But he is one of those who really digs into the text and writes songs from that perspective. And he wrote a song once called... Uh, God's own fool, God's own fool, Uh, and you think that sounds disrespectful until you understand what he means. And here's the first line, the first verse of this song. It seems I've imagined him all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind, but if God's holy wisdom is foolish to man, he must have seemed out of his mind. Even his family said he was mad, and the priests said a demon's to blame, But God, in the form of this angry young man, could not have seemed perfectly sane. And so the verse, the chorus goes on to say, And so we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell 
believe the unbelievable, come be a fool as well. I could keep singing, but I won't. But I say he takes his stuff from the scriptures. Even his family said he was mad and the priest said a demon's to blame. Where did he get that from? From today's text. Because that's what's going on in this text. Last week, uh, we talked about Jesus going to the mountain and calling his disciples. And that came after a series of stories in Mark chapter 2, leading into Mark chapter 3, verse 6, where Jesus was just having interactions that, with the Pharisees and the scribes that had a growing tension. Uh, and when we get to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, it says that the Pharisees and the Herodians conspired against him so that they may kill him. And so at the end of Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the tension has grown and the Herodians and the Pharisees are now planning with one another how to get rid of this guy. And so being rejected by the leadership of Israel, Jesus now goes up onto the mountain, as we saw last week, and he calls his disciples, and it says he names them as 12. And we dug into that text last week to say that what Jesus was doing in the calling of his disciples is he was setting up the new fulfilled Israel that is going to be realized in the church. You may be confused about the, the grand narrative of the Bible, but let me give it to you in this uh, just one sentence. That God called Israel as a nation to overcome and to bring an end to the sin of Adam. Israel by and large failed. One Israelite came and successfully and faithfully lived so that he overcame the sin of Adam. And now the mandate of Israel is picked up in the church. That's the Bible right there. Uh, and that's as simple as I can say it. Well, there's a simpler way, which is kill the dragon, get the girl. But either one of those works, right? And so now Jesus has called his disciples. He's named them 12. He, he's setting about this project of building the new Israel, the fulfilled Israel, and he steps back down into reality today. And the way he steps back down into reality is with Mark telling us stories of people beginning to think this dude is nuts. Now what we have here, and you're going to see this a lot in Mark, and I hate to give you the nerdy term, but I worked hard at seminary and so I have to do it. Mark does something called an intercalation. And Mark does these a lot. Uh, as a matter of fact, among some scholars, they're called a Markin sandwich. Doesn't that sound good? We should open up like a, a Bible sandwich shop and, and feature the Markin sandwich. And we're going to point these out as we go along. But Mark has an interesting way of telling his stories. He'll sort of begin a story, insert another story, and then tell, finish the story at the end. One of the most famous intercalations or Markin sandwiches is when... Um, Jesus is going to heal the daughter of Jairus, and the woman, as he's going there, the woman comes and touches him on the hem of his garment, and he's like, what happened? Where'd power lead me? And then he goes to Jairus' daughter again. That's called another Mark and Sandwich. You should look out for these, because Mark, what he's doing in, in telling us this is he's linking all of these stories together. So you always want to read the meat in terms of the bread, okay? And as we face that today, we have Mark beginning to tell a story in verse 21 of Jesus's family coming to seize him because they think he's crazy. And so his family, probably 20 miles away, hears that Jesus is so overrun that he's not even eaten. And he's having all these run-ins with the Pharisees. And his family finally goes, we, we got to go get him and save him. 
And they begin. And then Mark cuts into this story about the Pharisees saying that all the miracles that Jesus did, he did by the power of Beelzebul. And then you have Mark's family coming and getting ready to take him home and Jesus teaching them. And these things in Mark's mind are tied together under this theme that everybody who should be supporting Jesus is now rejecting him. So you would think if you were the king of Israel that the leadership of Israel would want to support you. But instead of that, they're saying you're demon-possessed. And you would think if anybody in this world is going to support you, it's going to be your family, right? And his family is saying you're nuts. And so this is going to begin like a heartbreaking section of Mark where he is showing how Jesus is going to be rejected by his own family in some ways. And he's being rejected by members of his crowd, and he's being rejected by the teachers of the law because there's no longer this underlying tension. They're no longer asking him pointed questions. They're now looking at him and going, you're possessed by the devil. And so what can we learn from this passage today? Because Jesus is going to interact with both of these groups. All right? And so I want to talk about the two charges they lay at his feet, and then I want to talk about the answer that Jesus gives, and then I want us to draw this together into communion. And it's always amazing how communion lands on Sundays when the text just kind of works really well with it. You'd almost think somebody's behind all this. So even his family said he was mad. The priest said a demon's to blame. Let's deal first with what his family said. They said, you're crazy. Now, I wish we could all be Greek readers here. It's not necessary, but it's helpful because you can kind of get behind the text and understand what is really being said here. It says in verse 21, and when his family heard it, that is, he was so busy, he couldn't even eat, and he was having problems on our side, and he was calling 12 disciples, they knew what he was doing. They saw the, the pictures and the imagery and the symbolism and Jesus calling 12. They began to think, this is getting out of hand. We're related to this guy. We need to go stop him. And so it says in verse 21, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, the ESV does a good job of translating this, because when it says they went out to seize him, that's the same word used in Mark 14, 46, when they go to arrest Jesus. In other words, his family isn't coming to even have a slight intervention. They're coming to grab him and to carry him back home. Because it says he's out of his mind. And one scholar says it should be translated, Jesus has gone berserk. And then when they get there, uh, it says, looking back down in verses 31 and following, it says, verse 32, and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And that word seeking Whenever it's used in Mark, is used of someone who's trying to get control of Jesus to aim him for their own purposes. And so this is not great, which makes me just want to say a brief little word. Let's do a little Druin sandwich, a little intercalation. Who was seeking Jesus, misunderstanding his purpose? His brothers and his... I don't know, that sounds like Mary might have sinned a little bit there. You think... She may have missed the point, and it seems to me the queen of the universe who was perpetually a virgin wouldn't do that sort of thing, and yet Mary does. Mary was given more about the mission of Jesus 
and even she began to misunderstand. I don't, I don't, I love my Catholic friends. I do. There's some things they do so much better than us. I, to the, for the life of me, I don't get the Mary stuff. A blessed woman, right? A blessed woman, but a woman nevertheless. Not co-redeemer, not perpetually a virgin because it says Jesus' mother and brothers. We have like five or six immaculate conceptions walking around. I don't know. End of Drew and Sandwich. They came and said, you're crazy. Now, why, why would they do this? Well, in Jesus' day, um, your family was everything. You know, we live in a day where a young person can kind of strike off on their own and go make it in the great big world. And people think they're doing something noble and great when in reality, they're able to do that because of so many societal structures that are in place. And in Jesus' day, those societal structures were very flimsy, if even there. And so your family and how you treated your family, and it was a shame and an honor culture. And so Jesus' family, if he dishonored them, would have brought shame upon the whole family. It reminds me of that scene in Pride and Prejudice where the youngest girl kind of runs off with a man. Do y'all know Pride and Prejudice? Am I? Okay, good. And uh, what's her name? Lydia. And Lizzie, the older sister, is worried. If everybody hears about what happened to Lydia, nerd alert down here. Uh, if everybody hears what happened to Lydia, our whole family is going to be shamed. And then we're never going to be able to find good men. Uh, and every woman back then needed bow. They needed some good bow. So it was going to ruin the whole family. And that was the idea here. And so the honor of the family was at stake. And so they said, we can't let him go on being crazy. He's going to bring dishonor to the family. Well, how did Jesus answer this? He answered it by saying something very profound and probably very hurtful. The profound thing that Jesus said is, I'm not crazy and I'm not dishonoring my family. I'm forming a new family. I'm forming a new family. Isn't that what he says? Look at verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, that is those who were with him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I'll draw this a little bit more fully out when we get to the end of the sermon. But for the time being, I just want to say this, that family in the Bible and the church is family is not a metaphor. It's the literal truth. Because Jesus is called our older what? And God is called our what? And we are called brothers and sister. Right? And so what Jesus is saying here is he's not in any way dishonoring the nuclear family. That's one of the structures of society that God put in place. Jesus is not undoing uh, the nuclear family. He's just saying this. As much as you enjoy your nuclear family, you've got one that should in some ways be closer to your heart. And Jesus says this family takes precedence in my heart. Does this family take precedent in your heart? One of the things that you run into a lot as a pastor, and let me say this, you guys work hard. I don't in any way ever question your need of a vacation, and I don't in any way ever question your need of wanting to be with your children at big events and all of that. I, I get it. My family goes on vacation. 
uh, and we try as best as we can to be at all the things. But I am amazed at how many people in the South think that it is completely legitimate to tell your pastor, I can't be at church because something having to do with my family. You may not, I'm meddling at this point. You going to say that to Jesus? Huh? Woe is me, right? Now, of course, things come up. Oxes in the ditch. There are big days. There is that once a year family reunion. I get it. No problem. I don't think the Lord has a problem with that. But the weekend, week out, I can't be at church because I just want to go, who's your family? And the Bible makes this a literal thing because our families have so much impact on us. I read a book over the summer that just talked about how your family of origin influences you. And it does, doesn't it? Uh, the way that they argue, the way that they communicate, the way that they talk. One of the hardest things to do in marriage is to decode what my wife means when she says something. And it's hard for her to decode what I say because we're trying. we got to use the the Rosetta Stone of our family past, right? Uh, and so you got to do you got to learn translation. Uh, and, and our sin comes out of our family, doesn't it? I mean, you know, I've not been shy about the fact that I have a panic disorder. My dad had a panic disorder. My grandmother had a panic disorder. All right? We learn how we talk, we learn how do we interact with problems, we even learn whether we deal with problems based on our family of origin, right? Yeah. And the church is supposed to be a new family of origin so that here we learn how to communicate differently and tackle problems differently and walk with one another differently and be patient with one another differently. And in the Bible, the church is to be like your nuclear family, a new family that teaches you how to act like Jesus would. It is no small thing. And it seems to me when Jesus has the choice here in, in a more family-bound society than ours to choose between his nuclear family and the family he's creating, which one did he go with? So, so at least what this will do is nobody will come up to me anymore and say I'm missing it because of family stuff, which would be, which would be fine with me. Again, I miss sometimes because of family stuff. I'm not saying that, but that habitual, it's almost as if I should understand that if it comes between the church and your family, I should just know that the church comes second. And you know what? I don't know that. You should know that I don't know that. I don't believe it. I don't buy it. On your conscience, be it. Capiche? All right. Maybe I went further into that than I intended, but... His family said, you're crazy, and Jesus said, uh, I'm forming a new family. Not in a way to reject them. At the cross, he took care of his mom, didn't he? His brothers came into his family. I'm not rejecting that. I'm just saying. New family, new family of origin, new way to learn to communicate, new way to tackle problems, new way to deal with things. And your church is to be that for you. Now, the Pharisees didn't say, you're crazy. They said, you're of the devil. I love the way that Jesus responds to this here. He doesn't respond in kind, does he? They come with a very serious charge. As a matter of fact, Jesus is going to talk to them about the unforgivable sin. So they, they're messing up here, but Jesus doesn't lash out. He speaks to them rationally, doesn't he? 
they say, in Matthew, we know what happens. Jesus has just healed a man who is uh, mute and I believe deaf, deaf and demon-possessed. And Jesus heals him in a moment. It's undeniable that Jesus had done a miracle. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees don't go, this is all show tricks. This guy is a, a charlatan. This is parlor magic. They don't say, they don't try to explain it away. They just try to say it's of the what? It's of the devil. There's no question historically looking at it from all kinds of history sources that Jesus had a reputation inside the church and outside the church and even in Roman literature of the day as someone who performed miracles and someone who cast out demons. It, historically, it's almost unquestionable that people thought he did. And so they go, well, you're, you're not doing this by the power of God. You're doing this as a result of the work of the devil. And Jesus speaks to them using an illustration. And that's what it means, parable. Parabole is a Greek word that has a wide meaning. He's like, let me give you a, a story here. Let me give you, for instance, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. In other words, Jesus says, guys, that didn't make any sense. Why would the devil be casting himself out? This means the end of him. It means the house is crumbling from within. You should somewhat be happy if this is the case, but it's not the case. How does Jesus answer this? He answers it by saying, I'm not the devil casting out the devil so that his house falls from within. I'm the Lord casting out the devil so that his house collapses from without. You're of the devil. Jesus says, I'm not of the devil. As a matter of fact, if you knew the, the literature of the day, uh, in the intertestamental period, there were all kinds of things that were written. Some of them are very helpful in understanding the New Testament. And in one of those books, it talks about how uh, only a plunderer can plunder a strong man. And in those texts, it talks about Yahweh the Lord as plunderer. And Jesus says, I'm not the devil. I'm actually who? Yahweh the Lord. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of C.S. Lewis. Maybe too much reminds me of C.S. Lewis. But have you ever heard of C.S. Lewis's famous trilemma? You're like, no. Okay, let me read it to you. You're like, I can't read that. I just want you to know that I'm not making it up. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis is responding to people who say, I don't believe that Jesus is God or the Lord. I just think he was a good teacher. How many of you ever heard somebody say that? Just a good teacher. C.S. Lewis basically dismantles that in one paragraph. He says, with the kind of things that Jesus said, you can't say he was a good teacher if he wasn't what he said. And so he sets up this thing called a trilemma. For you nerds who know, this is a hypothetical syllogism that Jesus is using here. Uh, either this or this or this, not this, not this, therefore this. All right? C.S. Lewis says he's either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's the Lord, but you can't say or he's a good man. Why? Listen to what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one of the things we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Isn't that what's going on here? Family says a lunatic. Pharisees say liar. And Jesus says what? Lord. Lord. He's not of the devil. He says, I'm actually not a lunatic. I'm a plunderer. And what Jesus does is he both gives credit to the strength of Satan and then lays it low. Because he describes Satan as having a kingdom and he describes him as having a house. And then Jesus says, but I've come to bind him so that I can rob him. This is Jesus' approach to spiritual warfare. Satan is big and scary and powerful, but nothing compared to the Lord. I've come to invade from without, which means, Jesus says, you need to be very careful how you speak. And this is where we get into this stuff about the uh, unforgivable sin. Look, look with me at verse 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For, there's a ground there, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And this gets us to the question of what is the unforgivable sin? Because there's no doubt that there's somebody in this church today who thinks they might have committed it. I was that kid. Heck, for a while I thought I might be the Antichrist. Thankfully it's Nero, right? But, <clears throat> or Barney, we'll work that out. But, Jesus is identifying the unforgivable sin here and we can't, we can't get this wrong. All right? There was a website not too long ago where people thought that the unforgivable sin was rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and they gave an opportunity for people to upload videos of them committing the unforgivable sin uh, and putting it on the internet for the whole world to see. And it was both sad and somewhat funny because they weren't committing the unforgivable sin when they did it. What is the unforgivable sin? It's this. Are you ready? It's not questioning God. That happens all over the place in Mark. It's not even doubting. Thomas did that, and he's okay, ain't he? What is the unforgivable sin? It is specifically this. It is saying that the power that Jesus had to do miracles did not come from the Holy Spirit, but came from the devil. The blasphemy is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, where you say the powerful works that Jesus did, he did by the devil and not by the Spirit. Anybody in here said that? Then, then you hadn't committed the unforgivable sin. In fact, this is one of the things where we should kind of focus on what Jesus said. Any sin and any blasphemy can be forgiven. That's good news, isn't it? Except this one. Now why? 
Because when you do that, you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And let me give you a little tidbit into the life of the Trinity. Jesus loves the Holy Spirit. And so if you go messing with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was the one who empowered Jesus to do his miracles, right? Peter tells us that in Acts 10, the miracles that he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was motivated by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit of God. And what these Pharisees is they were habitually saying what he's doing, he's doing by the power of the devil. And Jesus said, if you say that, you got no hope. So for those of you with very tender consciences like me, calm down. Because what you'll notice is that in this passage, Jesus was even warning the men who were committing it, saying, if you don't stop, your heart will be hardened and there will be no hope. Because Jesus came in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need not say otherwise. And so we come to the end of this passage today. We're thinking with this family. It seems like everybody's rejecting him. Is Jesus crazy? What does C.S. Lewis say? Jesus didn't say the kind of things that crazy people say. You read Matthew 5 through 7 sometime. That is the greatest section of moral teaching in the history of the universe ever. He was not crazy. He was not a liar. Everybody knew that he did not commit sin. When Jesus stood before uh, the tribunal that were trying him, they could not find anything wrong. They had to make things up or they had to twist things that he actually said. They brought this charge back up that he was working the works of the devil. Jesus was not a lunatic. Jesus was not a liar. He didn't leave us the choice, good man. He left us the choice, Lord. Jesus is Lord. And as Lord, he is coming to plunder the house of the strong man and to take back his plunder, that is us. We talked about this last week. I believe that we make choices that are significant and that are morally uh, culpable or praiseworthy. Amen. But I can tell you this. That when I was seven years old and the invitation was being offered and I was white knuckling that pew, it wasn't my choice that pushed me forward. It was God's call in Christ. And what was happening wasn't the devil casting his vote and Jesus casting his vote and me casting the deciding vote. It was Jesus breaking into the strong man's house and stealing his plunder and making me his son. Because he is the Lord. And because he is the Lord, he is due your faith and he is due your allegiance. And he is due my faith and he is due my allegiance. Well, how do we apply this as we look to the Lord's Supper? There's two things that I want us to focus on as we move into this time of breaking bread together as a it's a family meal isn't it this should be better than thanksgiving for us two things we need to know that jesus and the church is forming a new family and it is your family 
And what that means is that we need to do the things with one another that you do with your family. We need to be together. November 2nd, 145 p.m., meet here, 2 o'clock, go out to Tracy's camp. You can sign up after church. Or uh, we need to re-socialize one another. Well, that's not the way we do things in this family. We don't, we don't respond in anger when somebody approaches you with your sin in this family. We, we shut up and we listen, and then we check to see if it's true, and then we respond. In this family, we don't let one another go. In this family, this is the way we act. This is the way we should talk to one another. That's not the way we do things in this family. And we're all trying to socialize and re-socialize one another so that our family brings forth the values of the kingdom of God. Right? And it means that if one of us is doing without, the rest of us step in just like you would with your family. And I'm going to tell you this. And, and here I begin meddling again. We're getting ready to be faced with an election cycle where everybody is going to tell us what, they, what needs to happen with the problem of poverty and with the breakdown of the family. And they're going to make all kinds of, uh, you know, statements about what they'll do as president or vice president or as this. And they're going to try and legislate things that, listen to me, will never work. Because there are poor people who are poor because they consistently make dumb decisions. And they're lazy. Do you know what they need? They need an older brother to, to come in and say, I love you. I genuinely love you and I'll help you. This is what needs to happen. There are other people who are poor because they are truly disenfranchised. And what they need more than anything else is they need social capital. Where is that kind of person going to find social capital? You know why? Because if one of my kids needed a job, who would I begin asking for opportunities? And if somebody else needed a job, where should they be able to go? Right? There are lots of people in this world who need the family capital, the social capital, because the family is broken down and nearly gone, it seems. And what we need to be is the kind of family that welcomes people in and extends our social capital to those who need it and extend the brotherly warning of you need to get out and find a job and get off your rear end and work to others. But all of it done in love and none of it, well, we don't have any space or room for you. I just don't think the Lord's left us that option, right? And so Jesus is forming a new family. And I, I feel so strongly about that, that if you don't like that, I think you're wrong. <laughs> I really do. So if you think I'm wrong, ditto. I think you're wrong, and I just quoted the Bible, what you got? But then as we look to this communion, we have to realize that what this family is built around, this family is built around our older brother, Jesus, who for us and our salvation came down and took up our cause and lived for us and died for us so that just about any sin except that one, all kinds of blasphemy, all kinds of sin can be forgiven. In the Old Testament, there was a fairly long list of sins that were punishable by death. And what Jesus does in a stroke is he says, there's only one now, and that's to say that what I did, I did by the devil and not spirit which means that everything else can be forgiven 
And because of that, truth, we live. And in that truth, we breathe. And that is what we do when we take communion. We celebrate the fact that we have communion with God, we have forgiveness of sins, and we have a new family as we break bread together. We're getting close to the point, I think. You might have to hold me to this. Where instead of passing out pre-cut bread, we just pass out a loaf. And you, you pull things off of it. Right? Because that's what families do. We share bread. I touch the thing you just touched. Right? And I put down in my mouth the thing you touched. You're like, gross. Family. Right? After we do that for a while, we'll think about the common cup. But don't worry about that. It's down, it's down the road. It's down the road. Yeah. We're saying, I am communion with Christ, and therefore I am in communion with everyone who is in Christ, because he is not a liar. He is not a lunatic. Uh, he's the Lord. And so communion is something that is to be taken seriously and not lightly. If you're not a believer in Jesus, we actually ask that you let the bread and the juice pass by you as they're distributed. And we want you to take this time to consider the state of your soul. And don't worry. We're not looking around to see who's not taking the bread so that we can pass out a track to them when they leave. We'll respect your honesty. We'll appreciate that. If you are a believer who's currently living a lifestyle that calls your Christianity into question, we ask that you repent of your sin and pray for forgiveness and change. Confess your sin and get help because we don't want your taking communion to be another cheap act in a life that already cheapens grace. You take this time to pray, and then when the service is done, go to one of your brothers and sisters and say, I'm struggling with this, and I need help. That being said, communion is a time for all baptized, repentant sinners, because it is not our sin upon which we're meditating. We're remembering the limitless grace of Christ. So for all who trust in Jesus and seek by grace to follow him, we invite you to come to the table as our deacon comes forward.